Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. For every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Ah, thank you, Nathan. And um, if you hold that uh, passage open um, that uh, Nathan has just read, um, we're going to look at that this evening, and our... Um, actual text is going to be uh, James 1.17. I've got the uh, um, English Standard Version here, so I'll read it out in that version. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's just see if this works. There we are. Okay. So... Uh, I don't preach regularly, I don't preach that often, but when I do, I must admit that I always prefer to be given a passage or at least a th subject to speak on rather than having to come up with something myself. Me, I'm just going to move that away because it's right at my eye level. There we are. Uh, so yes, I prefer to be given a passage to speak on because the problem is that if you don't have that, then one's always tempted to bring up one's own ho hobby horses or return to the same familiar themes time and time again. So being given a subject to preach upon is a good correction to that. But even so, when Nathan came and said to me, we're doing a short series on the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I want you to speak on God the Father, I quickly realized that what I've been asked to do wasn't actually all that easy. Because we who are believers here this evening are called Christians for a reason. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet it's through Christ, God the Son, that we are saved. It is in Him that God the Father is most clearly revealed to us. So that back in John chapter 14, when Philip the disciple said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us, Jesus' reply was, well, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. And it's tempting to think that whenever God is mentioned in the abstract in the Old Testament, then that refers to God the Father. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, for example, there are numerous places in the Old Testament where God appears in what seems to be a human form. So in my old um, daily um, Bible readings at the moment, my quiet times, I'm working through Exodus. And in chapter 17, for example, when Moses is invited to strike the rock at Meribah in the desert so that the people um, get water, then God says, I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. In fact, some translations say, 
so I will stand before you on the rock at, at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And I'm fairly sure that that was Christ standing on the rock, inviting Moses to strike him to give blessing to the people. And then also in Exodus, a little bit longer, a bit later on in chapter 24 and verse 10, we read that Moses and Aaron and his sons and 70 elders of the people saw the God of Israel and under his feet was a work like a pavement made of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Some, 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 many of you may recognize that image being repeated in the book of Revelation. And again, I'm fairly sure that that would have been Christ that they saw as well. And then later on in uh, Judges chapter 6 and the story of Gideon, um, you may remember that the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and Gideon offers a sacrifice. Um, and there are many cases in scripture where angels appear to people and sometimes people bow down to worship the angel or to offer a sacrifice to them and they say, no, no, you mustn't do that. You mustn't bow down and worship me because I am only a messenger sent from God. And yet in Judges chapter 6, when Gideon um, offers a sacrifice to the angel of the Lord who appears before him, the sacrifice is accepted and the offering is consumed. And therefore, that being the case, far from assuming that every mention of God in the Old Testament is God the Father. We might go in the other direction altogether and start to think, well, actually, we don't know much about God the Father at all, and that perhaps, really, he's just a shadowy figure in the background. But then, of course, that's not true. The opposite of that is true. The opposite of shadow is light. And if James 1.17, our text this evening, tells us anything, then it's to show us that while God, while God the Father is only revealed to us through Christ, he really is revealed, not hidden, not hidden behind a curtain, but shown to us so that we might worship him in awe and in reverence. So that's what we're going to do. Our main text, as I said, is going to be James chapter 1 and 17. But we'll start at the beginning of the passage that Nathan read for us, um, because his, look, the, 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 our verse... Um, occurs in the context of temptation um, where it says blessed is the man who remains steadfast in the trial or as some translators put it who endures temptation for when he has stood the test he will receive the crowd of the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him we all know what temptation is it's when the desire arises within us to do something which is not consistent with God's law or his goodness or his character we've all experienced it and all too often we give in to it but where do such things come from james wants us to be clear that they don't come from god because he goes on to say when tempted no one should say god is tempting me for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone and his argument over the next couple of verses is that that is that that can't be the case because god himself is too pure to be informed, involved in anything sinful. And to do so would be against God's own nature. And by the time we get to verse 17, our text, he will be saying more about that nature himself. But first of all, uh, oh, there we are, just our text. I missed that, I'm sorry. There we are, I'm not very good at this. But first of all, I want to clear away an objection because um, 
if you're like me, you read, a, uh, you read an assertion, assertion in uh, Scripture or anywhere else, you might think, well, hang about, hold on. And when I read that, 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 that verse, I thought, well, hold on. You say that God does not tempt anyone, but aren't there actually quite a few Bible verses in the Bible where at first sight it looks as though God is doing exactly that? And yes, there are. So before we move on to the meat of things, I want to do, as quickly as I can, deal with that question, hopefully briefly. First of all, we'll start back in Exodus again with Pharaoh, where Pharaoh is oppressing the Israelites and preventing them from leaving Egypt um, when uh, God has called them out. And in verse 16 of Exodus 9, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, it seems on the face of it that God is taking responsibility for Pharaoh's actions. There are uh, at least 11 other occasions in the early chapters of Exodus where we read of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then the same explanation is given a little bit later when we read about Sihon, king of the Aborites, standing against Israel in Deuteronomy 2. Moving on through the Old Testament, um, 2 Samuel chapter 24, we read about the time when the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he, God, stirred up David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Moving on to Isaiah 10, when the Assyrians have conquered and colonized the northern kingdom of Israel and are threatening to do the same to Judah in the south, God says to Isaiah, woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I am sending him against the godless nation, he means Israel. I will dispatch him against the people who anger me. So again, it seems as though God is moving the Assyrians to do something which clearly isn't good against, against, um, uh, against Israel. Um, Judah was spared the Assyrians, even though, they had, uh, even though they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. But in the next generation, along come the, Chalde the, along come the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And in Habakkuk 1, we read how God says, Behold, now I am raising up the Chaldeans, that ruthless and impetuous nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And that's too much for Habakkuk. A few verses later in the same, uh, in the same chapter, we're in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1, this is verse 13, I think. Your eyes, Habakkuk says to God, are too pure to look upon evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So how do you tolerate the faithless? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And carrying on our theme, um, Romans 1, Paul talking about his contemporaries, about God gave his, gave his contemporaries up to shameful lusts. In other words, letting them, letting, the go, letting them go at it. And you know the passage where even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And um, in the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. That's what was going on. And it says, well, God gave the people up to do that. So can we really read all of those things and still accept James's point that God does not tempt anyone? And in the word, yes, of course we can. And this is why. Because in all of those cases that I've just cited, the people in question were still doing what they 
wanted to do and what it was their idea to do, if you like. And uh, in other words, God hasn't taken them in a state of neutrality, neutrality, so to speak, and put this idea into their heads. And that's what temptation would have been. Rather, these people had those ideas in their heads already, as, uh, as, 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 James, as, as, as James put it, um, the, uh, the temptation arises um, from within them. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And in that chapter, or in that uh, passage I wrote from Isaiah 10, I read from Isaiah 10, this is very clear when immediately after God describes the Assyrians as being the rod of his anger, he goes on to say, woe to the Assyrian in whose land is the club of of my wrath. I sent him against a godless nation, but this is not his intention. This is not his plan, for it is in his heart to destroy and cut off many nations. So the Assyrian just wanted to destroy. He just wanted to um, conquer. He just wanted to gain. It was God who, decided, who, who, who was sovereignly using the sinful actions of the Assyrians in order to accomplish his purpose. And so James is right. The temptation comes from in, within the heart of fallen man, but God in his sovereignty bends that to his own will. And this isn't my main point this evening. We are, I promise, going to move on to James chapter uh, 1, verse 17 in a moment. But nevertheless, it's a truth which comes out of this, which I do want all of us to bear in mind, that God, as well as everything else he is, is sovereign. And God's purposes in this world will be worked out come what may. And we all have a choice. We can accept God's purposes, and we can, can accept Christ. And we can trust in him and walk in obedience to him. And God will use us to, in, in his purposes, which is a privilege. And he will reward us for taking part in that. Or you can deny God and you can work against him. But if you do that, he's going to find a way to make use of you anyway. Even as he used Pharaoh and the Assyrians and the Chaldeans and so on. So which path an individual chooses to follow affects them a great deal. It affects them, their density, their destiny. But it makes no difference at all to God's purposes being carried out because God will, fill his purposes, God will fulfill his purposes with or without the help of men. But anyway, I did want to clear that away just in case anybody had uh, thought of that while we were reading it. But now we're going to move on to our main subject this evening, which is what the Bible teaches specifically about God the Father. So back to verse 17 in James. What do we have? First of all, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. God the Father is the source of every good and perfect gift that there is. Then, in James, he says, Coming down from the Father of light. That is the, uh, that is the term that James uses here. And then he goes on to say, With whom there is no variation in the esv here i've got no variation or shadow due to change so god is the source of every good and perfect gift he is the father of light and there is no variation or shadow in him and to put that in context when we think again right back in the beginning of the bible genesis chapter one 
what are the very first words as we find in Genesis chapter 1 being spoken by God? They are, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the next verse immediately after that, God saw the light and saw that it was good. So you can probably take these two first parts together, that God the Father is the ultimate source of everything that is good. And there's no clearer example of that than light itself, the first thing that was created and the thing without which any sort of light is impossible. But why the father of light? And why do we use the term father more generally here? Now this gets, this gets quite interesting. I mentioned earlier on that when we encounter the word God in the Old Testament, it's not necessarily obvious whether it's God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit who's being referred to. And in fact, the Old Testament uses the term Father to refer to God on very few occasions. Um, there's, Isaiah, there's Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16. But you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. And then in the next chapter, Isaiah 64, 8, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And then there's Jeremiah 3, verse 19, where God says, How gladly I would treat you like my children and give to you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought that you would call me Father and not turn away from following me. And then there's Malachi. Chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And that's pretty much it for the whole Old Testament. Um, and even in these cases, it's not a foregone conclusion that it's God the Father that is referring to, that is being referred to there, because that's a concept which isn't revealed to us fully until the New Testament. And yet once we are in the New Testament, it's completely unavoidable. It's uh, the, 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 the idea of God the Father is, 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 is shot through the whole thing. We first encounter Jesus referring to God as your Father, that is to say our Father, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 16, where he calls about Christians doing good deeds, good deeds in terms of your light shining before others and glorifying your Father in heaven. And from that point onwards, as we work through the New Testament, then references to God as our Father follow thick and fast. Perhaps the best known of all being in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to pray, and he tells us that we are to address God as our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, if you're used to the common prayer version. And God, as we go through the Old Testament, sorry, God, as we go through the New Testament, we learn that he is Father and that he is Son as he is Holy and that he is Holy Spirit, as we are going to uh, learn in this um, series, as if we didn't know it already. And yet it's God the Father that we are called to pray to nonetheless. And then Jesus first refers to God as his Father in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so it goes on. But the picture of God the Father and of, sorry, God the Father as Father and Jesus as Son 
is perhaps made clearest of all in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 30, where, we, where Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay? Can't, can't snatch them from my hand. Can't snatch them from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Which tells us two very important things. First of all, clearly it's an ambiguous, uh, sorry, unambiguous statement of Christ's own divinity. That Christ himself, one with the Father, is God himself. But it also tells us something about when God the Father began to be the Father. Was it when Jesus was born of Mary? Well, no, it can't have been. Because if Jesus is one with the Father, then that must have been true before he became um, physically incarnate when he was born of Mary. So God the Father must have been the Father before the incarnation. Was it at the point of creation, when the world was created? Well, no, once again, it can't have been because Jesus' oneness with the Father, if it means anything at all, must have started before then as well. So we're driven to the conclusion that God the Father is eternally the Father, always has been. There was never a time when that wasn't true. And likewise, Jesus the Son is eternally the Son, and there was never a time when one existed without the other. And with that, we're already far into the territory where um, Michael Sayward, in one of our um, contemporary hymns, King of the Universe, which is one of my favorites, he describes, being, uh, he describes God as being past understanding by our clever brain. And when we're into uh, these things, we're, we're well into that territory. And it's a subject which has taxed the greatest minds of the last 2,000 years and, uh, and has been the subject of all the great church councils of the last few centuries, sorry, the first few centuries, Nicaea, Ephesus, Chalcedon, and so on. And uh, I had thought of asking um, Nathan before the service, well, maybe to set all of that in context, maybe we could say the Apostles' Creed together before the sermon, uh, before the, uh, d during the service before the sermon, and he trumped me completely by starting the service with quoting from the Athanasian Creed, which I was very, <laughs> very pleased about. So well done, thank you for that. But all of this, the fact that it is just so um, impossible for us to wrap our own minds around, I take that as evidence, if anyone needed, the doctrine of the, the doctrine of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity, if you like, is something which has been revealed to us and which we are called, as best we can, reverently to understand and not something that men have simply made up. Okay, so he is the Father, the Father of light. Oh, wrong button, I always do that. There we are. But he is also the constant God, the God that doesn't change. So moving back to uh, our text in James uh, 1.17, we read about something very important, that, um, uh, that there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fact, I think the NIV translation says he does not change like shifting shadows, but the more common translation is in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, which of course we've already sung about this evening. 
And the implication is very simple. It is that if we are to describe God as being light, if we if were to describe God the Father as being the Father of light, um, then that highlights his constancy and um, God's light is constant just as John puts it a few pages on from our passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, which Steve Berry, Steve Berry preached on last June, where it says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's 1 John 1, verse 5. So putting what John says in 1 John together with what James says here in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 17, we learn that if God were to be inconstant, that is to say, if he were to change with the seasons or evolve over time, then that inconstancy would be like a shadow impinging upon his brightness. And just as perfect light can't include a shadow within it, well, likewise, the constant God cannot be inconstant. That is uh, that because that would go against his own nature. And there are all sorts of things which flow from this. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was allowed into Thomas Telford School in Telford to, um, um, to take an RE lesson uh, where I gave a form of the faith and science presentation that long ago I did on a Tuesday evening here in Wem. And I pointed out how modern science as we know it is something which arose during the Puritan period, well, the Puritan period in England and in the same sort of time frame in uh, other Protestant countries of Northern Europe, and it arose amongst those people on two very specific bases. One of them was a belief that the laws of nature were constant simply because the God who created them is constant. And therefore, we don't live in a, um, a random and unpredictable world where just about anything might happen according to the whims of God or the gods or, or whatever, but rather we live in a constant and reliable universe because we have a constant and reliable God. And that was one of the two pillars upon which the Puritans built what we now know as modern science. Uh, the other pillar, for what it's worth, is their belief that human beings are sinful, and being sinful, we're often stupid, and therefore we have to test our understanding of the word by actually doing experiments rather than relying on reason alone, because where the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, went astray, was that they had such a confidence in the powers of reason that they would sometimes believe things and think, yeah, that's obvious, we don't need to experiment. And therefore, they went very badly wrong on things like, like the Earth being at the center of the universe and everything rotating around it and um, um, beliefs about um, the medicine and the body and all that sort of thing. But anyway, another thing that flows from this is the constancy of God's moral laws because they're a reflection of his character and therefore don't change, which also means that behavior, behaviors that are condemned in the Bible. For example, I gave an example from uh, Romans 1 earlier on, are still sinful. There's no concept of morality developing with time as society itself changes, and we, we, we need, we're obviously called upon as Christians to stand firm on that and not follow the whims of the society around us. But then beyond that as well, there's the fact that God's constancy assures us that we can trust his promises. They depend, sorry, they remain dependable no matter what our own circumstances are or how our own moods change. God the Father has promised that all who approach him 
through Christ will be accepted and saved. And that promise can be depended upon come what may. Which, as I come to my last and fairly brief point, is just as well. Because if we cannot approach God the Father through Christ and trusting in him, then God is the pure, God the Father is the pure and the unapproachable God. And James touches on this again when he describes God the Father as being light. Because that highlights his purity and his holiness. And the consequence of that is that we can't just wander into God's presence as we are. I mentioned earlier it's in Exodus 24 when we have Moses and Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders of Israel seeing God, seeing the God of Israel. It goes on to say that not only did they see the God of Israel, but after that they beheld God and afterwards they ate and drank. And one of the reasons um, I think that that's pre-incarnate Christ that they saw is that a few chapters later in Exodus 33, we have Moses asking of God, show me your glory again. And God replies this time, well, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And we have that very, to me, very strange passage where God tells to Moses that he will make all his glory pass before him, but Moses must still not see God's face and Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and all of God's glory passes before him, but Moses cannot see God's face. And throughout Scripture, it's uh, uh, made clear that God the Father is so glorious that without Christ's mediation, no man can see him nor approach him. For example, here's Timothy describing him. One Timothy, it's another one of those 316s. You can do a whole study on uh, 316 throughout the whole Bibles. Well, this is, this, is, this, this is 1 Timothy's contribution to that. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. And I could quote a dozen or some more such verses, but our time is done, so I'm going to leave the conclusion to our closing hymn. Now, there were so many hymns I could have chosen to close this, uh, um, this, 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 this sermon, this study on. The Michael Saywood one that I quoted earlier on would have been a good one, but we've sung it quite a lot later, so I thought uh, we'd, 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 we'd find something else. And to cut a long story short, I've gone for The Lord Eternal Reigns, by, uh, by Isaac Watts. I wonder, uh, Richard, is it possible just to have the first verse of that up on the screen before we sing it? And then what we're going to do is we're going to uh, sing this. Sorry, I should have worn the music group as well. So we're now going to close by singing this hymn and then I'm going to hand over to, uh, to Nathan to finish. But the first verse, the Lord eternal reigns, his throne is built on high. The, ro sorry, the kingly robes he wears are light and majesty. His glory shines with beams so bright, no mortal eye can bear that sight.